Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances of survival were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Today, we spoke with Bevan Harris, a World War II veteran. Bevan shared with Angus Horden the story of his father's service in World War I, Bevan's service in World War II, and Bevan's memories of his schoolmate, the late David Boyle. I'm Angus Horden, and I'm joined today by Bevan Harris. Bevan, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Bevan, let's talk about your father, Keith. When was he born? 1896. Okay, so he would have been quite young for the war when it broke out. That's correct. Uh, He joined, I think, when he was 19 years of age. Okay, and he was one of the early Gallipoli veterans? Yes, he was. Can you tell us about his action at Gallipoli? Well, he, he landed four days after the arrival and he was a stretcher bearer. And I believe I'm a very lucky person to be alive because the stretcher bearer goes out and brings the wounded in from the battlefield. At Gallipoli, there were so many deaths, so many casualties. A lot of people perhaps can't appreciate how dangerous being a stretcher bearer was. Did he recall any of his stories of his service to you? I think it's fairly commonly known that most of them spoke very little about it because of the horror of it all. But uh, the stretcher bearer had to go out and probably in many cases dress the wound in the, dress some of the bleeding and all to stop the bleeding in the field, which was very, very uh, dangerous. Well, especially Gallipoli because the Turks had snipers at every hilltop and ravine covering us. Did he ever mention to you that he may have known or encountered Simpson? He was there, I believe, 14 days after Simpson was killed. So it was very uh, mindful to everyone that the Turks were now targeting um, our stretcher bearers. I mean, Simpson, of course, is the most famous because of his donkey, but nevertheless, it just highlighted how dangerous it was being a stretcher bearer at Mm. Gallipoli. So your father finishes his work at Gallipoli and is successfully evacuated with the forces and then is relocated, of course, to the killing grounds of France. Can you share with us some of those terrible experiences as I understand he served on the Somme and indeed at Passchendaele? That is correct. And he was gassed and wounded in the Somme. Uh, he was on the, the last uh, boat to leave Gallipoli, by the way, because the stretcher bearers had to stay behind to tend to the wounded, the last of the wounded. Well, that's a very interesting point. I don't think many people would appreciate that, Mm. um, that the stretcher bearers were the last to go, logically thinking they would be looking after anyone that was wounded in the evacuation, and they did expect major casualties. Mm. You mentioned that your dad was sadly gassed in France. That means he would have been treating troops that had been gassed. Did he ever recount to you some of the horrors of him dealing with the cries of these, you know, 
young boys as they were mangled on the Western Front. No, he didn't. They, they, they was, was, uh, protected us. Because remember, I was only about, uh, when he, this was fresh in his mind, uh, I was only about four or five years of age. But his, I'll tell you, his service as a, as a uh, stretcher bearer and treating wounded and burns and things was very instrumental in me as being that hand of mine being saved. You see, it's got a very severe burn on it. Yes. Yeah, so Bevan, you've lifted your left hand, and yes, it does show severe burnings that you've had in the past on that hand. At the age of two, I put my hand on a boiling copper and he would come home every, every twice a day and dress it because it, uh, wound, uh, dressing wounds in those days, burn wounds, was correctly known like we do today, put it in the hand in water and all that sort of thing. And he would come and keep it moist so that the, the, the blisters and things didn't didn't uh, break, and as a result, I have full use of that hand today. Which I understand you've put to good work on the golf course oh, in all I, these years. In the past days, <laughs> yeah. But look, what a wonderful example just that practical knowledge was in saving, mm. you know, indeed your hand. But you mentioned that your dad was gassed, and indeed he, as I understand, had a very serious bout of the influenza and bronchitis. Yes, which uh, which which led to his evacuation. Yes, I read that in the uh, uh, document that came from the ANZAC people. Uh, I I didn't know anything about that. That wasn't a, a, a case later in life, but we had to move from Coogee, where I was born, to uh, Gordon to get further away from the ocean uh, because of the the gassing, the gas that he that he had experienced. And there, for the rest of our lives, we lived on the North Shore. Your father is evacuated to England in order to recover from his gassing and indeed his, his terrible sickness. And I understand that he met your mum there. That's correct. He had decided that if he went back to the Somme, he would be killed. He did tell me this and, um, he just, and I, his action for that was to get married. And as a result, my eldest sister, who had just died at 97, was born in England. So when you were growing up, you mentioned that your father really didn't share any of his experiences that he'd been through other than show you firsthand his expertise in dressing your wound. Mm. Well, I was only two years of age when it happened. <laughs> and later on he didn't speak of it when you were older? No, never, no. So, Bevan, you mentioned that because of your father's gassing you had to leave Coogee and move up to the North Shore of Gordon where you went to school. And at the school that you were at you attended a cadet corps. Can you share how that experience shaped your life? Well, I think it shaped it enormously. Uh, my, in my friends I had in later life, most of my close friends were from Knox and or Shaw, but mostly Knox. And my association with Knox definitely uh, developed my character and my confidence. I actually went, my father sent me there because I was attending uh, uh, Gordon Public School and we had a, a, I had a master called Flintoff. And if the name, name alone would turn you off, well, he certainly upset my nervous system. As a result, it was decided that I need to be at a, in a more compassionate situation for the future. And I remember going to Knox and enjoying every year of it. 
And can you mention your experience in the cadet corps there? My experience in the cadet corps, we used to wear a blue uniform and my mother was furious about it because every time I wore it, I got it dirty. And they were, they were very unusual uniforms. And then we'd go to camps and things and I really enjoyed it. I had my own dr- drill squad. I got to that stage. <laughs> Uh, but I've really been a participant rather than a leader in most of the things at Knox. But would you say, though, that the background and certainly the training that you received at Knox with its discipline and especially with its cadet corps was of benefit to you, certainly leading then into your own war later? Oh, yes, definitely. Although when we when I was uh, went to my rookies in the... I joined the Air Force in the ground staff and we had to do a rookies course at Shepparton. And I said, look, I've been in the cadet corps and I've been a this and that. It doesn't matter, mate. You're still going for a 15-mile walk <laughs> with a pack. <laughs> I don't think any of us got out of that. <laughs> so, Bevan, talking about the next war, can you firstly tell us about your father's experience in the Second World War? father had no experience in the Second World War except he had the experience that his business uh, had prospered and uh, he went to uh, England and Europe to get, we had an agency agreement in the food and flavour industry and chemistry industry and um, he was caught in England when the war broke out. Right, so... And he was in, he had a a European agency for a company called Pollock and Swartz and um, he decided to switch that over to an English agency, Bushboke Allen, and uh, that was the turning point. And he got on the last boat out of England for um, America. Bevan, can you talk about your own experience in the Second World War, please? Well, because of my father's experience in the First World War, he was not keen that I was suitable for an active participation in fighting a war and they organised for me to go into into radar and telecommunications and uh, that was well beneficial although everything I learned is so old-fashioned it doesn't matter anymore. (laughs) I think the point though of radar is that Australia was very lucky to be the beneficiary of the British radar system at that stage which was world best and certainly we got great British radar and a lot of our capital warships so if you were in a radar unit, and I understand your first posting was up towards Port Moresby, I understand the Japanese had largely been pushed back at that stage, but nevertheless they were still there. Can you recall your time there and also in Milne Bay? Oh, well, in Port Moresby, we our job was to reinstate the communications of course, Port Moresby had been a centre, so not a lot to do, but the fighter planes were still taking off from Port Moresby and flying to the field. And we had one bomber come in and crash into a hill, blew up in front of us, and we were... They weren't that far away. They, were, they had been returned, but cause they hadn't finished uh, getting the Japanese out of the out of the area. So were the Japanese at that stage still bombing Port Moresby or had they been pushed back? They weren't bombing, although the last bombing raid, I think, was a few weeks before I got there. You're fortunate because there was a period of time where the Japanese Air Force had control in that area until Mm. they were pushed back. So it was fortunate to you that you were just past that period. But 
In your work on radar, besides setting it up, were you actually intercepting radar calls at all? No, it wasn't in that regard. I we we did our course in radar and telecommunications in Melbourne at RMIT, and um, we had the opportunity. They came around and said, "Look, we're looking for people to do a." a a telecommunication course in phones and landlines and all this sort of thing, and we're pretty sure if you do that, you'll get you'll get an overseas posting. So my pal and I, Wally and I, decided. I said, let's do it, Wally. So we did it, and we, as a result of that, we did go away almost immediately. I was eighteen. Bevan, your your time. In um, the radar unit means that you are in Port Moresby, you're doing some work in Milne Bay. How did the rest of the war fill itself out for you? Well, then the rest of the war, we were sent up to uh, Madang. We got there only days after it had been cleared out. In fact, we used to have them coming through at night time looking for food and things. We never went too far into the bush. Our job was, as I said, to reinstate the communications at the airport and headquarters. And basically, you fulfil that role, and how far away is the end of the war now? Well, the war ended when I was there. We were sent to various places from there. We used to go down to Nadzab and Ley and, and so forth, and uh, Finchhaven to um, do work there and come back again in the day. We'd go to the airport and ask the pilot where he was going, and he said, OK, we'll hop on board, and away we'd go. <laughs> And Bevan, what was happening with your dad at this stage? He was back home? He got back home and uh, started to re- business was difficult, but it, they decided to make flavourings and um, uh, they got into the manufacture of artificial flavours, supplied a lot of the soft drink industry and uh, baking industry and etc. Bevan, the war winds up for yourself. However, you've shared with us a fellow schoolmate, David Boyle, who, by coincidence, like Charlie Wannan, another Knox boy, was the son of a Presbyterian minister. Can you tell us a little bit about David's story and his service? David, first of all, was born in India because his father established a, a school which has been called the Boyle Public School. He left school and wanted to go to the war, but it was the war was getting underway, and so he went and joined. Went to Duntroon. Being there, he realised that the number of years he had to be there before it, uh, it would be qualified, the war would be over. So one way and another, without going into the detail, he managed to get himself fired. <laughs> by jumping the fence and one thing or another and doing things he shouldn't do. Took a boat to England and after a period of time, he decided he'd running out of money, so he joined the British Army and uh, was in the army for 26 years. Finished up in the King's Hussars and finished up as a commanding officer of their tank corps and actually in charge of their tank school in England. And uh, his... Uh, his he has written a bo- uh, his life story and his memoirs, are, I thought he had given a copy to the Knox, Knox Library. He was seen in pretty well every country. He was eight years on the Western Front in Germany. Uh, he was in um, the sewers. He was a leading tank in the sewers and I remember him telling me that he was commanding the entries to Portside in the front tank and they received a message Supposedly, we understand from America to stop and go back. He said, we could have taken Portside, but 
we, we had something to do with religion. This is what he told me. So they had to stop and turn the tanks around and go back to where they came from. So his service was more after World War Two in all the incidents such as the... Pretty well every war that happened after World War Two, David was involved in, particularly in Korea, very much involved in Korea. Can you tell us about his Korean experience? He was uh, once again a commander of a tank corps. His commanding officer wrote, wrote in the... Whenever they were in trouble, they could guarantee that David's tank would be in the right position to, to clear the problem. He was very experienced. The other part of his life in the army, as far as tanks was concerned, he was involved in uh, selling the tanks for the British to the foreign. In fact, many times uh, when he was fighting in tank wars, he was, I think, fighting against British tanks. <laughs> and the other very interesting thing that he was in Libya for a long time with uh, Colonel Gaddafi and um, became very good friends of Gaddafi and... Uh, Gaddafi was about to start a revolution and he said, sent David a bottle of champagne and said, Dave, get on the next plane and get out of here. <laughs> so was David in your year at Knox? Yes, he was. He did go to the university afterwards for one year uh, and did a, a year of economics. But he, every time he, he was allowed to come back to Australia every three, every three months, every three years, I'm sorry, and uh, he always arrived with, he became known as Uncle David in our family. And uh, he'd arrived with a huge bunch of flowers for my wife and the kids. They all grew up with him. And um, he would tell us, that, oh, he said, I, I managed to get on a battleship in Singapore and they brought me down. He'd just go to the airport and say, look, or go to the army. And he just flitted around the world without paying any travel expenses get on a battleship or an aeroplane. Or... So, so did he stay a single man? Yes. Uh, he nearly married a German girl, he told me, but he did remain single. And when did you lose your friend David? Well, since I... matter of fact, I, I spoke at his funeral here. We managed to get him into the war vets at Narrabeen and um, he was here for a few years. And But I'd, I'd only been here over a month and he'd, uh, he died. And... Um, so I had the opportunity, an invitation from his brother to speak at his funeral. Well, it's nice that you started your life together and you finished your life together. Yes, yes. And Bevan, the life that you've lived, starting with your father, with his service, and how a guardian angel sort of looked after you, that you, with no disrespect, had a lucky or what we could call a good war. Yes, I we, did. And, and it's pleased with no disrespect to you at all. No, no I think um, my father knew how easy it was to get killed. Well, to your point, you know, and especially with regard to your dad, even though he was a stretcher bearer, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the stretcher bearers went to where the fighting was the thickest and the worst because yeah. that's where the casualties were. Mm. They were also unarmed. Mm. So they were unable to protect themselves against bullets and shells. They couldn't even protect themselves efficiently against gas. Mm. as indeed what happened to your father. He mm. was gassed and, and mm. had to be uh, repatriated back to London. And again, fate was a wonderful healer here that he met Lottie and uh, your mum and, <laughs> and the rest is history. She was born on the Channel Islands and her father was actually interned during the war there. And I did have the opportunity to meet him. Fantastic. I would love to have known him better. He was the boilermaker on the Channel Island boats for 20 years. 
and they used to travel backwards and forwards from Plymouth to the Jersey Islands and to the French coast, pick up a few bottles of cognac and bring them back and sell them in, so I was told, sell them in, in England. He was really a, a most interesting man, and his, his son followed his footsteps. He became a member, uh, Uncle Jack his name was, my mother's brother. He joined uh, the East India Company, and uh, after the next number of years, he was allowed to retire. And he used to come, they were allowed to come for holiday every, uh, go back to England or Australia. And that Australia port at those days, the only port was Albany. And he'd come back to Albany. And it, when they had, re, when he was, retirement came, uh, it was, he decided to come and live in Australia. And he lived in Perth up till recently. And I only met him once. And he was the same age as I am now, 93. He had a walking stick, which he wouldn't let me see. He kept on hiding it behind him. He was a great fisherman, so I really would have liked to have known him. <laughs> well, here you are. You're living at, down here at Narrabeen, overlooking Narrabeen Lakes. So you haven't left the sea too far behind. Oh, no. Bevan, it's been a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing your father, your mate David, and especially your own story. Thank you for your service, and thank you for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. If you like the conversation, let us know by going to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star rating and review. You can reach out to us online too. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and we're on Twitter at LOTLpod. Give us a like as well on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Let us know what you think of the show and give us any feedback by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.